Boston. Yeah, parked parked the car in the yard. So it's, it's funny. It, my accent is starting to go away. And I've been here in, uh, in Nashville at a wedding the last couple of days, and I'm seeing it start to slowly creep back. And so, uh, so I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, so I, I, I grew up with an accent. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm married to Amy. My wife is from Alaska. And so that's kind of where some of my accent started to go away. Spent some time in Alaska and then moved back to Birmingham several years ago uh, to plant a church. And, uh, and we have four daughters. And so, yes, I said that right. We have four daughters. Uh, Addison, or sorry, let me get them in the right order. Lily, Addison, Karis, and Amelie. So I remembered all of their names. That's step one. Um, and, and yes, before you ask any of those questions, yes, like we were not trying for a boy. Um, I know how much weddings cost, and they're never dating. So, um, so get all those questions out of the way. But, um, but uh, we moved uh, to Boston about four and a half months ago after spending almost nine years in Birmingham, Alabama, coming back home, planning a church in downtown Birmingham. Actually, I met Ben through Andy, his brother. Um, Andy was moving to Birmingham to plant a church as well. And then a, a couple of years ago, Andy and I were both planting churches in Birmingham, decided we could do more together. So we actually decided to combine forces. Neither church was struggling, but we said, let's work together for the greater glory of God in Birmingham and see what God can do. And little did I know that that was the genesis of God sending us to Boston. I had no idea that the Lord would do that, but after a road trip a couple of years ago, driving through Boston, seeing the lostness of a city where less than 3% of people trust Jesus as Lord, I was compelled by Jesus that we had to go and tell others about him. And so thank you to you as a church for supporting us. For, for If it weren't for churches like 24 Church, we would not be able to do what we are able to do in the city of Boston. And so when we think about Boston, we think about why does, why does anywhere need a new church? Why would, a, why would there need to be new churches in Nashville? Why would there need to be new churches in New England? Um, one statistic in New England is the fact that, again, there's less than 3% of people in New England who know Jesus as Lord, and, and there are only one church for every 40,000 people in the greater Boston area, which is incredible to think about that there's such little access to the gospel. And as we began to really pray about what it would look like for us to go, to uproot our lives, to leave Birmingham, leave a church we love, and to go into a completely new place, we really had to dig down and really understand what that meant. And when we, we thought about that, we thought, why would it be worth it for us to go? Why would it be worth it for us to, to take our kids away from family and from friends and people that we love to go to somewhere where we really don't know anybody? And the reason is, is Jesus is good enough for us to do whatever he calls us to do. And so we, what happened is we, we got up there, we started doing some, uh, some, re, uh, um, some assessment with the North American Mission Board. We started exploring what it would look like, and we got connected with a church there called City on a Hill. And so we're spending, as Ben said, the next uh, year working with them, doing a residency. At the end, of the, uh, beginning next summer, we'll actually begin, spend about a year in the community just building relationships, building a reputation as a church that really loves and cares for our city. After we uh, develop a couple of discipleship groups, we'll begin meeting as a church on Sundays. And so when we think about our vision as a church, our vision for what we're gonna be calling City on a Hill, West Roxbury, the furthest west neighborhood in Boston, is that we wanna see every person in Boston experiencing the gospel. Every person in Boston being marked and changed by the work of Jesus. And you ask, how could we possibly accomplish that? How could we possibly accomplish what seems to be an incredible task to see people who would be far from God be brought near to God. A group of neighbors who are not predispositioned to wake up on Sunday morning and go to church, but yet we want them to encounter Jesus. 
See, Jesus majors in the seemingly impossible, and the darkness of Boston does not scare him. And in fact, the big idea that we're going to unpack today is that Jesus welcomes those who are far from God. So if you, if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be turning to John chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to see how people welcomes those who are far from God, whether they're like the woman at the well that we're going to look at today or whether it's like the staunch Catholic who's grown up in the Catholic church for their entire life, or it's the person who's given themselves to a progressive worldview and mindset, that Jesus welcomes those who are far from him. And when we look at the woman at the well, we see a test case. We see the picture of if God can save this woman, if Jesus can meet this woman where she's at, then Jesus can reach anybody. And maybe you walk in here this morning and maybe you're feeling like you're in that hopeless place. You feel like there's really no way that Jesus could forgive me for what I've done. I want you to really listen to the story of the woman at the well this morning. We see in verse one, starting in verse one, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Jesus is the, at the beginning of his ministry. He's, he's seeing some success. Uh, he's kind of getting on the radar. He's not at the place yet where the Pharisees are ready to kill him, but he, he's making some noise. He's making their lives uncomfortable. So things, the heat's kind of starting to rise, and he's like, I need to kind of let that die down a little bit. So I'm going I'm to kind of check out and go back home. So he's going back to Galilee. But what you notice in verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. That's really interesting when you understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this would have been the shortest route to take a shortcut through Samaria, but it would be kind of like us taking a shortcut through that part of town that you really don't want to drive through at night, right? Like you don't want to spend any time in that part of town. It's dangerous. You lock the doors. You go through as fast as you can. You rolling stop through the stop signs. Like that's what's going on here in Samaria, In fact, what most Jews would do is they would go the long way around. They would go far north up into Gentile territory, cross the Jordan River, and then come back down in order to avoid Samaria. You've really got to hate somebody if you're willing to cross a river. I mean, that's like, anybody play Oregon Trail as a kid? Yeah, like, like you're fording the river, you're, you know, you're risking dysentery, like, like you're doing all this in order to avoid this group of people. See, the Jews and the Samaritans had this long-standing hatred that would rival college football hatred. I was watching the Auburn-Georgia game last night, just hating my life. Because as an Auburn fan, we hate Georgia. And so I can imagine some of that, Alabama worse, and we're going to get killed by them in a couple of weeks, but I want to talk about that. And so you see that kind of same hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the product of intermarriage between the Jews and Gentiles during the Babylonian captivity. And so when the Assyrian Empire conquered, the, the, conquered Jerusalem, conquered Israel, they, they took many of the people, exiled them to other parts of the Assyrian Empire. But then they took people from around the empire and brought them into Israel. And what happened is many of those who were left behind began to intermarry with those Gentiles, and it brought all kinds of crazy religious syncretism and strange beliefs, and they were kind of mixing idol worship with following Yahweh. And so what eventually happened is they kind of pushed away those idols, but kind of were left with this really strange version of Judaism. 
It affected what they believed was God's word. They only took the first five books of the Old Testament. Where they worshiped was different than the Jews. And when the Jews returned after the exile, they, they hated the Samaritans. They looked at them as, as half-breeds and sellouts, and they refused their help in rebuilding the temple. And so what the Samaritans did is they went to Mount Gerizim, which we see here later in chapter four, and they, they built their own temple of worship. But then it gets worse in 128 BC when the Jews actually burned their temple to the ground. So you can imagine there's all of this historic hatred between these two people groups. And yet what we see Jesus do is he defies conventional wisdom. He defies cultural expectations and he goes straight into the heart of Samaria. As it says in verse five, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. What is Jesus doing here? Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus go to this place? I believe it's for the woman at the well. That Jesus looked at this woman in his sovereign will, saw her and said, I want this woman in my family. I want this person who is far from me to come into my family. So I'm gonna do everything necessary to meet her exactly where she is and to bring her to me. And this is a beautiful picture of God's grace, isn't it? That in the same way God looked through eternity and he saw you exactly where you are and he does everything to bring you to himself. And it's not just that, that Jesus is making himself available. It's not like Jesus just stands up there and says, hey, here I am, come find me. He, he comes and he gets us. He comes and he rescues us. He enters into our mess and he welcomes us by pursuing us and he meets us where we are. And what Jesus does in this story is he shows that the gospel is for everyone. In the middle of this patriarchal society where men would not even speak to women, Jesus meets this woman who's outside the covenant, who's a half-breed, who has a past, and he does what Tim Keller says. He says that he embodies the gospel, that he reaches out to someone who the culture is stacked against, that he's not privileging getting into God's kingdom based upon anything that we've done or our heritage or our background, or our potential. See, grace levels the playing field. It's the most exclusive club that anyone can get in on. And so what we see is that Jesus welcomes those who are far from God. And that is our hope in planting a church in Boston, is that Jesus welcomes those who do not yet know him. And as we look at the passage this morning, we're gonna see how he does that in three ways. The first way we see this is that Jesus exposes us as sinners. He exposes us as sinners. You look at verse six, we see Jesus' humanity. So he's there at the well, at Jacob's well, and Jesus was wearied he, as he was from his journey. He was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus is tired. He was thirsty. That Jesus experienced everything that we experience. After a long day of work, he was tired. And as he's sitting there, this woman comes along and she's alone at the sixth hour. Now, in the Jewish day, the sixth hour would have been about noon. It's the hottest part of the day. She's coming to the well alone. And in a few minutes, we're gonna talk about why that's important. And as this woman approaches the well and Jesus sees her, this, this woman that he has come all this way to meet, he asks her for water. In verse seven, it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
And this woman is shocked because we see here in verse eight that the, the, the disciples had gone away. And, and the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Like, like you're asking me for water. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't eat in the same room with them because they were afraid of making their food ceremonially unclean. And in fact, they wouldn't even use the same utensils that a Samaritan used. And this woman is completely shocked that Jesus would say, you put your Samaritan bucket down in that well, or in that well, not the well, the well, and, and draw out some water for me. You're gonna risk being unclean according to what your people believe. But in Jesus asking this, he shows that he has something that she needs. In verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If only she knew, if only she knew who was talking to her, if only she knew what he was talking about and what he was offering, if, what this water could do. And then you notice that she completely misses what Jesus is trying to get at. In verse 11, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's saying, you don't have a bucket to draw any water up with. This well is over 100 feet deep. You're, you're kind of missing it. And then she kind of gets indignant. In, in verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. You're saying you're greater than Jacob? You're saying you're greater than our forefather in the faith? And then Jesus says, actually, I am. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What you've been trying to satisfy yourself on is only gonna leave you empty and you're gonna drink it and for a moment, you're gonna be satisfied, but then you're gonna have to come here again and again and again. But what I'm offering you, you can take it and you can drink it and you will never be thirsty again. And the Samaritan woman's at least intrigued. In verse 15, she's like, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. There's almost a hint of sarcasm there, like, okay, sure, like, if you can give me that, great, I, I will gladly take that. But you also see a glimpse of hope. See, something about coming to this well was hurtful for this woman. Something about coming to this well and, and, and the idea that she would maybe never have to come again was really good news. And what Jesus does is he sees past this and he goes right for her heart and goes to the inner longing that the outward action, her outward actions are manifesting. And in verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come here. Go call your husband. And right there, she tries to end the conversation. She's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of this in whatever way possible. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus continues to press the issue he says, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It's like mic drop. Like, like all of a sudden, he's like, bam, business is out for everybody to know. D.A. Carson says, what's startling is the manner in which Jesus commonly drives to the individual's greatest sin 
hopelessness, guilt, despair, or need. What is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus being cruel? Is he being like every other person that this woman has ever encountered? No, it's actually quite the opposite. What Jesus is doing is he's exposing her sin, but he's doing so in the most gentle way possible. He's exposing her sin not to shame her, not to put her on blast, not to, not to say, look how awful of a person you are. How dare you question what I'm giving you? He's saying, no, I wanna expose your sin because I love you. And I wanna show you your need for this living water. What he's saying is the path that you've chosen to satisfy your soul isn't working, that you've jumped from relationship to relationship and you think that if I can just get into a better relationship and somebody who's gonna treat me just a little bit better, then I can finally be satisfied, I can finally be happy. And it's no different from us whether we're jumping from relationship to relationship or we're jumping from job to job thinking that maybe it's our employer's fault that we're not happy or that there's not enough money in the bank, or if we can just get into a better situation, then we will finally be satisfied. And they all fail to quench our thirst. When we make good things like relationships and jobs and money an idol, what they do is it's actually like drinking salt water. It doesn't actually quench your thirst, it just makes you thirstier. But what Jesus is offering is different. He's offering eternal life. Tim Keller says eternal life is through the Spirit's power, the assurance and experience of love, pardon, presence, and grace. Jesus is saying, I must expose your sin so you can be satisfied by something better. Because not only is your sin not satisfying you, it is killing you. It's like cancer in your soul. I was talking with one of our partner churches a couple of weeks ago. I was talking with their missions pastor and I was like, hey, tell me what's going on in the life of your church. And he said, we're, at, we're going through the book of Hosea. Now, if you're not familiar with Hosea, Hosea was an Old Testament prophet and, and, and God must have had it out for him or something because he had him marry a woman named Gomer, like, like Gomer Pyle. Like, sorry if your name's Gomer or you're married to a Gomer, but that's a terrible name. And, and, they, and they, had, they, had, they had two children. I'm gonna get beat up after the service. They, they, had, they had two children whose names literally meant not my people and not my covenant. And if it, gets any, if it gets a lot worse, because then Gomer sells herself into sexual slavery, and Hosea goes and spends everything that he has in order to buy her back. This beautiful picture of love. And what he said is during that series, four affairs came to light. And one of them, the guy was caught. And this is what the guy said. He said, I wasn't gonna stop unless I got caught. God exposed me, I'm broken, and I see now how badly I need his grace. God wants to expose our sin so we can be set free to enjoy him. Is there something that God needs to expose in your life in order to set you free to enjoy his grace? The second thing we see is that Jesus embraces us as sufferers. So he exposes our sin, but he also embraces our suffering. And you notice something in verse 19 about what this woman does. She begins to kind of try to cover up her shame and her guilt. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This guy lays her business out for, for, for him and her to, to hear, and she starts talking about theology. She starts propping up her Bible study knowledge. 
See, theological discussion is an easy cover for a spiritually struggling heart. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's really easy to have had a terrible week and be struggling with some junk and come in here and slap on a smile and say the right thing so that other people won't ask you the right questions. She covers up. There's these, these hints of shame. She's like, I can't really let him into what's going on in my life. But you see some of this shame in her story. She came to the well at noon. In the, the heat of the day, the most dangerous time by herself, typically women would travel in packs to the well for protection. And because of the fact that this woman had had five husbands and now she was living with a man, she'd probably been called trashy. She'd probably been called a homewrecker. She'd probably been seen the scornful looks of other women who looked at her and said, don't you dare come near my husband. She'd felt the, the painful glance of, of others and said, you know, it's better for me to kind of push away human interaction for the sake of, of hiding my shame. Sin brings shame. Sin's lie is that it has no consequences. And in a culture where we had the lie that sex, and in particular, is without limits, there's this public persona of freedom that if we just express ourselves, we can be free. But the private truth is that our sin leads to destruction and devastation and suffering. And yes, this woman was a sinner, but she was also a sufferer. Some of this was due to her choices, but some of this was due to what had been done to her. And there's no telling the abuses and the struggles that this woman had faced at the hands of other people. That's why it's so important to hear people's stories before we make a judgment about what, why they're acting the way they're acting. And if you look at this story, you peel it back a little bit deeper, the fact that this woman has been married five times is probably not her fault. See, in her culture, it would have been illegal for a woman to pursue a divorce. And so five times, this woman has been told she's not good enough. Five times, this woman may have been told that she wasn't beautiful enough, that she wasn't satisfying enough, that she wasn't witty enough or interesting enough. And now she's sleeping with a man so she can have a roof over her head. She's been used, she's been abused, she's been called names. In fact, Jewish men would call Samaritan women menstruants from the cradle, meaning that they were perpetually unclean. There's a shame that comes with our sin, but Jesus has come to set us free. Across this room, there are likely many who have suffered and struggled with the suffering that's come at the hands of other people. A few years ago at a church retreat, woman after woman got up and expressed how they had been abused at the hands of other people and how that same, that same struggle and suffering was impacting how, how they were living today. And, and they were expressing this because they said that we need, we need the freedom of Jesus. And likely in that room, there were probably also some men who had had the exact same thing happen to them, but were too afraid and ashamed to admit that they might look weak before others. Like the woman at the well, those memories can make us feel stripped of dignity and worth and value. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to come and say, I know you and I see you and I want you. I welcome you, I embrace your suffering and that you are mine and I am yours. See, notice how Jesus invites her in. All of her history and all invites her in in verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem 
will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is not just correcting bad theology here. Again, in verse 21, notice what he says. He says, you will worship the Father. You will worship the Father. He's he's saying, you're not too shameful to come to the Father, but you will worship the Father. See, Jesus is the first safe place that this woman has, has experienced in a really long time. Jen Pollock Michael puts it this way, trying to imagine what this woman would have experienced. She says, what was it about this man that nurtured her small shriveled seed of hope? Why should she ever believe a man again when all they'd ever done was promise lies in exchange of sex? He'd awakened something sleeping in her, a desire to find herself in the arms of something, someone so deeply satisfying that she could drink in its abundance and nourish the arid places of self-hatred and shame. Something made her begin to believe again. Jesus is saying, come and worship me with all your junk and all. This is where shame is taken away. This is where guilt is driven as far as the east is from the west. This is where you see your value and worth and the fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Come and drink the living water and never thirst again. There's no hiding from him. There's no need to hide from him. If you you skip down to verse 29, this woman after this experience runs to her fellow Samaritans and she says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She has this messy past that is so central to her identity that when Jesus exposed it and met her in her suffering, it was as if he knew everything. And for some of you this morning, you may have been defined by a single event or a single theme in your life. And I want you to understand that Jesus can meet you right there and give you freedom. For me, the long, for the longest time, I have struggled with the idea that I still need to do something in order to make God love me. I grew up in a house where your performance was really tied to your value. So I grew up believing that if I was a good student, if I was a good athlete, if I was, if I was a good kid, that, that, would get me, that would get me adulation from my parents. That would get me love. That would get me acceptance. And because I was raised that way, I really easily kind of carry that over into how I view God. See, Jesus meets us right at the point of our deepest unbelief. He meets us as sufferers. Lastly, this morning, Jesus empowers us as saints. He empowers us as saints. See, God doesn't want to just make us better people. He doesn't want to just make us more moral people who who tend to do more right than wrong. He actually wants to change the entire way that we relate to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is, not, is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Worship is not about a place, but it's about a person. And so the true worshiper is gonna worship God in spirit and in truth. And what this means is it's gonna require more than just doing spiritual actions. It's gonna require more than just showing up to the right places and saying the right words. It means that there's a fundamental change that has a change between how we see ourselves relating to God. And she begins to see the link in verse 25. She says, 
She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. I'm the key. I'm the answer. I'm the way. It's not about going to the right temple. It's not about doing religious activity to get to God. It's not about making God proud of you. It's not about something that you bring of of your effort and your actions and your promises to do more and to try harder, but it's about receiving from God through Jesus Christ. Think about it. What qualified this woman to worship God? Like if she was laying out her spiritual resume before God and saying, God, God, I can worship you in spirit and truth. What about her qualifies her? It's Jesus. And the reality is this morning, if you were to lay your spiritual resume before God and say, what qualifies me to come before you and worship you? What do you think the answer is? It's Jesus. He not only takes away your sin, he changes who you are. He makes you into a saint. See, being in Boston, many of my neighbors are Catholic. So when I use the word saint, I have to redefine the word saint. They usually imagine that painting of the person looking up to the sky and the sun's in their eyes. That's kind of what, that's kind of what they imagine a saint being. It's this really holy person who, who is so holy and so good at being a Christian that we're going to call them a saint. What the Bible says is that you and I who are in Christ are saints who receive God's grace freely. And what this does is it changes the motivation to worship. This morning, if you are here because you think that your attendance is earning you something before God, you have vastly underestimated the grace you've received in Jesus. Your attendance here this morning is not trying to invoke God to love you. It's because God loves you. And as Ray Ortland tells us, we need to stare at the glory of God until we see it. I pray that you would trust and believe that God is working in you and that he has has made you a holy person. And here's where I wanna kind of tie this back together with the idea of encountering Jesus. The natural response to encountering Jesus, to experiencing the gospel is to tell other people about it. Look at how the woman responds in verse 28. So she, the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What did she do? She left her jar behind. She went and she said, come and see a man. See, when we encounter Jesus, when we experience the gospel, he empowers us as new people with the spirit as we fix our eyes on him and we begin to leave behind what we've trusted in and we more fully trust in him. We leave behind what we used to get satisfaction from and we live in the grace that we've received, pointing others towards Jesus. That may mean leaving behind the jar of our work defining us and living in the grace of doing good work that blesses other people to God's glory because we've been set free and we're already a workman approved. It may be leaving behind the jar and laying down our political ideologies that we can seek the justice and good of our neighbor. It may mean leaving behind the jar of comfort and excess and giving faithfully to show or to show simple, ordinary hospitality to our neighbors. 
making cup of coffee after cup of coffee and meal after meal, day after day, sitting patiently with the same person and telling them the love of Jesus because God was patient with us. It may mean leaving behind the jar of fear and pride and telling our neighbors the good news. When we encounter and experience Jesus, he empowers us to do the ordinary, everyday things to his glory. You know, people often ask, like, like, what do you do? Like, you know, like you go to church, you go to Boston and you plant a church, like, what do you do on the day-to-day? Like, like, what does your week look like? Um, you know, I, I do have some responsibilities I have in the church that we're doing residency with, um, but the rest of the stuff, I'm doing kind of just what you're doing. Like, I go get Dunkin' Donuts. Like, I saw a Dunkin' Donuts on the way here and got excited for a moment. Um, like, like, you know, the, there are more Dunkin' Donuts in Boston than I think there are churches in Nashville. Like, it's insane. Like, one time I tried to actually count, and I got to, like, 53 individual Dunkin' Donuts in two days. Like, they're everywhere. Like, like I go to Dunkin' Donuts. I, I go to the park with my kids. I, 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 I meet my neighbors. I invite them into my home. I tell people about the good news of Jesus. So whether you're going to Boston or Botswana or you never leave this zip code, every single one of us is called to to live out the gospel before others as people who are experiencing the good news of Jesus. And so as we're planning a church in Boston, what we're calling people to do is come and see this man who told me everything that I've ever done. Leave the jar behind. Leave behind what satisfied you once and find true satisfaction in Jesus. And so as we plant a church in Boston, we asked our, our core group this a couple of weeks ago, what could God do over the next 30 to 40 years of ordinary people just living and experiencing the gospel? And I believe God can change a city. Because if God can change our dead, cold hearts, he can change a city to his glory. And I pray that God does the same thing here through 24 churches as he does through City on a Hill Church in Boston. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you that you've loved us. Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, did not look at us from afar and say, come and get me, but you saw us and you came down. You took on flesh. You lived among us. That the people in the first century get to experience you and to see you and to know you and hear the good news come off of your lips. And that you, Jesus, went to the cross, dying the death that we deserve, and that you rose again, that we may have new life, that we may have the living water that we hear about here in John chapter four. That though we were far from you, you came and you rescued us. And Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come both here and in Boston and around the world, that more and more people would be able to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray this in your name. Amen.